So last episode, something happened. Quite a few of you experienced The Stranger as ending on this huge cliffhanger where Rachel meets herself from the future. It was a pretty cool spot to suddenly end an episode, I'll admit, but that was not actually done on purpose. Somehow in the process of editing and uploading, the last 20 minutes of the episode, give or take, got chopped off. So if you experienced the cliffhanger version of the last episode, please go back and listen to the real ending because it has a lot to do with the book we're talking about now and there's gonna be some spoilers. I am sorry for that mix up. I'm exercising constant vigilance from now on. Hi, and welcome to The Dome Ship, an Animorphs recap podcast that is shocking and envelope pushing whether you've read the books or not. I'm the Salty Professor, a Black queer scholar with a PhD in English literature slash feminism, gender and sexuality studies, and I'm here to talk about The Andalite's Gift the first entry in the special event series Megamorphs, which is within the larger YA sci-fi series Animorphs by Katherine Applegate. And you know, it's not hard to explain, but it kind of is. In a way, Megamorphs can be seen as like the season finale, or like back in the day when TV series had two-hour special event episodes. It's still Animorphs, but there's even more action, the stakes are higher, and more interestingly, all of the main characters take turns narrating. It's going to be tricky figuring out how to capture this for you guys, but it's going to be great. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to acknowledge my listeners. It really means so much to me that you all tune in and enjoy the show. And it's really extraordinary because we've got listeners from all over the world. The United States, the United Arab Emirates, Japan, Norway, Israel, the Netherlands, Argentina, Singapore, the Philippines, Canada, South Africa, and Germany. We are all over. And I think it speaks to the awesomeness of the Animorph series that people from everywhere can enjoy the story. I'm so grateful to you all, and I hope we can hang out and talk about these books for a really long time. So let's get into it. Megamorphs number one, The Andalite's Gift, was published in May 1997. The cover depicts Jake, Cassie, Marco, and Rachel all halfway morphed into a tiger, fly, wolf, and grizzly bear respectively. Tobias in his hawk form is also sort of awkwardly hanging out near the bottom left corner. These morphs are mostly important, but there are too many of them. So this is going to be the first episode with no cover watch. I'm sorry. The back cover reads, We never should have done it, but we needed a break. You know, some time off from the superhero stuff. A chance to act like normal kids. Well, as normal as four kids who can morph, a hawk, and an alien can be. Everything should have been cool. Now Rachel is missing, and there's this this thing that's after us. But it's not up to me to tell the whole story. Tobias, Cassie, Marco, and Axe were there too. Even Rachel has some info to add. So go ahead and check this out, and remember not to tell anyone what we're about to tell you. It could mean the difference between life and death, or worse. We get to hear from all six of the kids this time, which is going to be exciting. We get a taste of the aftermath of the previous book where the Candrona was destroyed. And this book is almost twice the length of the normal one, so it's super packed with adventure. We start out at Cassie's barn. Everyone is there except for Axe because he doesn't want to be in Human Morph. 
For once, they aren't meeting because of a crisis or life-threatening mission. The issue is that Rachel has a weekend gymnastics trip that she signed up for months before all of this Animorph stuff started. It'll be the first time that any of the kids have gone away since they started this war on the Yurks, and Rachel is nervous about leaving the team one girl short if something happens, which, I mean, you know, something always happens. There are some sweet moments where Rachel admits she's worried and kind of looks at Tobias, and then Jake tells us that Cassie has figured out there's something between Rachel and Tobias, which is sweet, but also really sad because Tobias isn't human anymore. Marco finally pushes Rachel to go by shaming her for thinking the others can't survive without her, which, I mean, like, is she wrong though? You know, she's definitely the, the most, like, dedicated fighter they have. And later, Cassie mentions to Jake that she's having this recurring nightmare where she has to choose who lives or dies when something bad is after them, which is really ominous. These kids are scared all the time, but I'm so glad that they have each other through all of this. The next morning, Rachel heads to school to catch the bus for gymnastics camp but she got there super early so that she could go visit Tobias. She says that she didn't even think at the time how tricky a situation she was in because her parents and friends thought she was going to the camp. But what she didn't say was that she'd already told the staff of the camp that she wasn't going before she decided to go after her friends argued with her in the barn. So basically, no one knows where she is and everyone thinks she's somewhere else. This is some pretty glaring foreshadowing because she's basically like, huh, if I disappeared, no one would even know to look for me for a really long time. This should just be a general no-no in this group. Just like secretly hiding out on somebody's body as a flea or trying out new morphs without a buddy, someone in the group should have a vague idea of where you are at all times. Not like a detailed class schedule or anything, but let's just say, you know, whether or not and for how long you're supposed to be out of town. Rachel decides that looking around for Tobias on the ground would take too long, so she morphs into an eagle and goes off to find him. She talks a lot about how wonderful flying is. She doesn't mention thermal specifically, but it's got that vibe. But then things quickly go south. She ends up flying towards a bird's nest unwittingly, and a bunch of birds mob her to protect their eggs, and she flies headfirst into a tree trunk at a very high speed. She tries to morph out when she hits the ground, but then she is 100% knocked out. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the woods, Marco and Axe are having a very silly conversation. Apparently, there's a pool party happening today, being thrown by a girl at the middle school named Darlene. And basically everyone in the grade has been invited, except for Marco, because he's a big practical joker and ruined Darlene's last pool party by planting baby Ruth bars in the pool and saying it was poop which to be fair is pretty funny, but also a solid reason not to invite him back. And of course, Marco wants to crash this pool party and he's recruiting Axe as an accomplice. They're going in as mice. During the back and forth about the pool party, we also learn that Axe has fleas. It's new to him and he's not happy about it because it's itchy. I am bringing that up because it's gonna matter later. Tobias brings them the mouse to acquire and warns them that it's a bad idea because a lot of animals in the area, from birds of prey to house cats, love to eat mice. Then he mentions that even predators aren't safe. He saw an eagle get mobbed by a bunch of jays earlier and slam into a tree. I hate it when stories do this, you know, the thing where characters keep just missing each other at really bad moments. It's just, it's torture. It's torture to witness. 
Okay, so we switch perspectives. We're in Jake's POV now and learn that Jake and Cassie are at the pool party. They feel bad that Marco wasn't invited, but they really want to take this chance to relax and feel like normal kids. They're just lounging in pool chairs, trying to imagine what it's like to have a normal day when suddenly Darlene starts screaming. At first, Jake goes into crisis mode, assuming there's an attack and he's gonna have to morph and the whole bit, but it just turns out that Darlene has spotted mice in her backyard. It wouldn't be a big deal, except for some reason, the two mice are actually chasing Darlene around, which is very unmouse-like behavior. One of the boys at the party's like, run this way and I'll stomp it, and the mice perfectly dodge his foot, and Jake and Cassie just facepalm for a moment before jumping up to rescue their dumb friends. Marco and Axe flee into the house and down to the basement to demorph and for Axe to then get into his human morph so that they can leave. But then something strange happens. The sky goes dark and all the kids freeze in shock. A big cloud of dust just appears out of nowhere and it's swirling over the kids' heads. Jake can tell that it's dangerous, but no one, it's not clear what this is. The dust cloud becomes more solidified and goes for the house. At this point, before we get any more information about what's going on, we switch to Marco's perspective. We get a rundown of what it was like for him to chase Darlene. It seems like the plan initially was just to spy on the party and Marco wanted to know if the girls at the party would be talking about him. He used his thought speak to provoke Darlene into talking about him because nobody cared before. And she says the worst thing she could possibly say, which is that he isn't even funny. That's when Marco decides to charge and Axe just follows him because what the hell is going on? There's a replay of the chasing and screaming and all that, and then they reach the basement. They're halfway out of Mouse Morph when suddenly the entire first story of the house is ripped away and they're looking directly up at the sky from the basement. There are these crunching, ripping sounds and huge chunks of the house, wood and plaster and glass and brick and wires are just being torn apart. And Marco sees this huge thing that looks sort of like a swirling cloud of teeth and blades just tearing up the building. Somehow during all of this, Marco managed to fully demorph and Axe manages to become human. The huge murder cloud kind of stares at them and they see lots of eyes sort of blink in confusion and then the cloud disperses into fine dust that drifts away just like that. Okay, so now we're back in the woods with Rachel. She has no idea where she is or who she is. She tries to speak, but she can't. She tries to sit up and realizes that she's some sort of half bird, half girl creature. What a horrible way to wake up. She passed out in the middle of trying to demorph and suffered memory loss because of that really bad head injury. She decides that she must be human and sort of wills herself to have a human body and she realizes that she can change back, which is good. It's not clear how much of her two hour time limit has passed, but she wasn't an eagle for very long before she went down. While she's concentrating on her body, she notices that the sun is blocked out. A dust cloud is thickening over her head and seems to be watching her. Next, we're in Tobias's POV, and he wants to tell us about Darlene's pool party from his bird's eye view. Just as a note, generally when we switch characters, they kind of start us over at, you know, the last event and sort of how it looked from their eyes. So that's why we keep doing the slight rewind and getting a little more information each time. So Tobias was floating high on the thermals, of course, above her house, just there to keep an eye on Marco and Axe and swoop in if they got into trouble. 
He takes a moment to explain what thermals are before getting back to the party and how Marco ruined it. Tobias sees the two mice run into the house and then he notices a sort of dust storm swirling around like a tornado until it tightens up into a bunch of swirling teeth and blades and glaring eyes. He decides to fly toward it to distract it, which is a ridiculous idea, but then it suddenly dissolves. I had a very strong reaction to Tobias's plan here. He is seriously brave, y'all. Tobias is like ride or die. If he thought about it for longer, I'm sure he would realize there's not much a bird can do against this thing unless he thinks it knows their identities maybe. But I still love the fact that Tobias sees a huge dangerous problem and his first thought is always, how can I help? He stays ready and it's excellent. Anyway, Tobias, with his superior hawk vision, notices something about the dust creature that Marco and Jake don't. It doesn't simply evaporate into nothing. Instead, the dust particles kind of spread out and fly off in a faint swarm, and the swarm is heading off towards the woods. Tobias doesn't know, but we know that that's where Rachel is. Mid-morph, Rachel can see that the swirling teeth dust thing is after her and she runs for it. She's still part bird, so things are a little awkward, like her arms are bent and tiny and feathery and she's having a really hard time. She's running and she's just really confused, like what is this thing and why does it want to kill me? It's chomping through the trees like a giant chainsaw. She finishes morphing and races out onto a highway. The dust monster hits a huge Ben and Jerry's truck and the trailer gets shredded. Ice cream is exploding all over the place. Rachel sort of crouches in the ditch in the median of the highway and the dust monster sort of stares at her, confused again, and then it disperses. The Ben and Jerry's truck driver survived and ran, but the truck is sprawled out, stopping six lanes of traffic. Rachel heads back into the woods just as a man jumps out of a car with a camcorder to record the wreck. Now, for the first time, we're in Cassie's house. They're in her living room watching TV. Cassie, Jake, Marco, and Axe in Human Morph. The news is on and it's showing a story about a freak tornado that destroyed Darlene's house. It seems like no one got hurt, which is good, but highly unlikely given the violence of that thing and how freaked out everyone was, but okay. Then the story moves out to the highway where apparently the same tornado struck later. They were taping the news story, which on one hand I think is weird because who were they saving it for? And on the other hand, I totally get it because in the 90s, we taped everything we watched at our house. Cassie asked them to rewind the tape because something looks familiar. There's a barefoot blonde girl off to the side of the road that they only see for a second, and they can tell it's Rachel. And that's weird because Rachel is supposed to be off at gymnastics camp. Marco points out that it can't be a coincidence that the tornado comes after Axe and Marco and then makes its way to the highway where Rachel was. Axe has never heard of this creature, but it seems like it's definitely after them. Cassie decides to call Rachel since she's apparently home and might not realize any of this dust beast stuff is going on. Only Rachel isn't home. One of her little sisters picks up the phone and reminds Cassie that, duh, Rachel is off at camp. When she hangs up, the group is stressed out because absolutely no one knows where Rachel is and she is clearly in danger, just like the rest of them. I mean, yes, they're always in danger, but this is like a new danger, you know what I mean? Now we're back in the woods with Rachel. She still has no idea who she is. She realizes she understands basic things. She knows what objects are called. She knows about seasons and houses and body parts, etc. but no specific details about herself. Her name, where she's from, who she knows, why she was half a bird this morning. You know, pretty important stuff. 
She's wandering through the trees, shouting out, who am I, a bunch of times into thin air, when she comes across an old shack deep in the woods. This is probably the shack where they held Jake that time he became a controller. Rachel even says she sort of recognizes it but can't figure out why. There's a woman there, covered in many layers of clothing, so it's hard to tell what she looks like. She's dragging a bag stuffed with clothes and headed towards the shack. When she sees Rachel, the woman speaks to her like a customer at a clothing store. She says, if you want to return the item, you'll need a receipt, multiple times. Rachel can tell that the woman isn't well, but she decides that, you know, she isn't that well either since she can't remember who she is and follows her on into the shack. There are piles and piles of clothes absolutely everywhere, piles three feet high, clothes in every condition from filthy or partially burned to brand new. I love how practical Rachel is in this moment. She's like, well, there are clothes everywhere and I don't have any shoes, so let's remedy that. She offers the woman a leaf in exchange for the shoes, which she absentmindedly accepts as payment. Rachel asks the woman what her name is, and the woman says, my name or its name? We are two, not one, which, hmm. While Rachel is digging around for shoes, the woman asks her, are you one of them, the ones that live in your head? And at this point I'm like, oh, this woman was a controller. What is going on here? But Rachel is completely oblivious, wondering if she can find a match for this Converse shoe she found, but settling for a Reebok, just totally unaware that things are even stranger than she at first realized. Rachel hears a creak and looks behind her to see that the woman has opened a trap door in the floor of the shack. And before she can really react or anything, the woman barrels into Rachel from behind, screaming, Yerk! Yerk! Rachel falls through the hole in the floor and lands in a sort of dirt crawl space. The woman is still shrieking Yerk over and over, and it triggers a tiny bit of a memory for Rachel. She can see the Yerk pool underground slugs swimming around in a gray liquid. She's not sure what it means, but considering how bad of a time the animorphs always have down there, I'm not surprised that these images are some of the easiest for her to recall. Ugh. Rachel calls out to the woman through the closed trap door that she doesn't mean to hurt her, and the woman is like, no, you just want to crawl in my head like before and take my husband and children, but you died, didn't you? Rachel has no idea what any of that means, but she's gathered that the word yerk means something to her and it's bad. But y'all, we know what it means. It means that the yerk this woman is talking about, the one that took over her body, starved to death after the Kendrona was destroyed in the last book. It starved and she didn't get taken back down to the yerk pool. This is our first glimpse of what's going on with the yerks after the events of the last book. Clearly, there's not enough Kendrona to go around anymore. Meanwhile, Jake and Marco have taken a bus to get near the spot where the ice cream truck got destroyed and they saw Rachel run away from the scene on the news. Tobias is already there waiting for them. He says Axe is on his way, running through the woods in their direction. Tobias says he hasn't seen anyone around in the woods except for an old woman who is living in a shack not far away. Again, with this characters just missing each other thing, I hate it, it stresses me out, so please stop. Jake and Marco have a pretty decent plan. They brought along some of Rachel's clothing and the plan is to morph into wolves so that they can track her scent and find her. They're almost all the way morphed and suddenly Tobias is like, it's coming! The dust cloud monster is collecting right above the trees near them. 
But don't worry, we're done with that for a moment because we're back with Rachel underneath the shack. She tries yelling at the woman some more, but Homegirl is over it and has shuffled on back to her clothes piles. Rachel starts to get flashes of memories, but probably the worst ones possible at this moment. She gets flashes of various morphs she's been in and some aliens like Hork Bajir, but she doesn't remember what they're called. She sees Elfangor dying, just like poor kid, like of all the things your subconscious could offer you while you're panicked and confused. Mm -mm. And then she smells smoke. The clothes lady set the shack on fire. She's screaming, you won't get me again, Yerk! I mean, I'm glad she's fighting back and all, but read the room, lady. She's trapped underneath this crumbling old shack that is now engulfed in flames. It's getting hard to breathe. She tries to break out of the crawl space, but she's not strong enough. She realizes maybe there's some way she can change to have more power. And without even understanding what she's doing, she starts to turn into a grizzly bear like she subconsciously knew to become a grizzly bear. Personally, I would have hoped that the elephant morph would be more fundamental for her, but she is loyal to this bear morph from now on. It's not a bad choice, it's just very intense in a, in a different way. Now we're back with Jake and Marco, who spotted the dust cloud just as they're finishing their wolf morphs. They take off running and the cloud is right after them, shredding up trees, cutting a path 50 feet wide just behind them. They realize that running through denser trees slows it down just a hair because it loses momentum tearing up the landscape. But it's not like they can run forever. Also, Tobias overhead can see that they're coming up on a meadow, which means it won't be slowed down anymore. But before they get to the clearing, the dust monster seems to lose interest and heads off in another direction towards where they can see smoke rising. Back to Rachel. She waits until she's morphed enough to have bare strength and rams through the wall of the burning shack. She realizes that she is becoming a grizzly bear and that she fought as one before, but she has no idea why she is able to do this. She wonders if she really is a yerk because humans clearly can't do what she can do. Just as she finishes morphing, the dust tornado monster thing shows up and Rachel is caught up in the grizzly bear's instincts. The grizzly bear wants to throw claws because it's being challenged by the monster. I mean, I'm glad that she's got a confident, powerful morph, but it's clear that Rachel isn't entirely in the driver's seat right now. She rears up on her hind legs and roars and swings a paw at it. Just then she hears her name being called in thought speak. She's forgotten that term, of course, but we know that's what it is. She turns around and sees a weird blue horse man thing, which we know to be Axe, but Rachel is just confused as hell. But mostly she just has time to wonder if maybe her name really is Rachel before the dust monster heads for Axe. Now we get Axe's first ever time narrating. Woot! It's just that... If I were really reading these for the first time, I would have been worried that we weren't ever going to get his perspective, but here we are. Axe sort of starts the story all over again, which is odd because we're kind of in the middle of something here. He gives us his full name. Elfangor is his big brother who was killed by Visitor 3. Darlene's pool party was a bad idea. The dust creature appeared and it's really scary. Got it. Axe says he was running through the woods to meet up with Marco and Prince Jake when he noticed the smoke. When he looked up at it, he could see the dust monster heading towards him, so he decided to run for it and not lead it to where Prince Jake and Marco are, which is noble of him. You know, too bad it was, it was already there. But I like these kids' instincts. Remember, Andalites call their leaders princes, so he always refers to Jake as Prince Jake, which Jake doesn't like, and it's really cute. Axe decides to run towards the fire because maybe the monster won't be able to find him in all the smoke. 
As he gets closer to the fire, he sees a grizzly bear roaring at the monster, and he's like, Rachel, is that you? And Rachel just sort of whips her bear head around to stare at him like, is my name Rachel? And the dust cloud goes for her. She's staring it down like, come at me, because her brain is mostly bear right now, and Axe is like, run, you cannot fight this thing. But you can't tell Rachel nothing. And she swipes at it with a giant bear paw that would take anyone out. Only this time, the swirling teeth just eat it in a second, and Bear Rachel is standing there with a bloody stump. Axe is feeling really helpless now. He would normally use his tail to fight, but he realizes that wouldn't do any better than the bear paw against this creature. Bear Rachel isn't done. She thinks, well, I'll take you out with my other arm. And the dust cloud chomps that off too. It's really, really bad. Rachel is finally terrified and in a lot of pain, losing a lot of blood. Axe knows he can't do anything for Rachel, but he decides he's going to morph into a bird called a harrier that can follow the dust cloud to wherever it's going next. Maybe he can learn something to help them beat it. He sees the dust monster completely surround Rachel as he starts to morph, and suddenly the monster stops. It lets Rachel go and comes straight for Axe. And Axe is very smart and manages to make a connection about what's going on. The dust cloud seems to be attracted to morphing somehow. That's what makes it come for them. Axe reverses the morph to go all the way back to his andalite shape and the dust monster surrounds him. It doesn't want to kill him though. It sort of wraps him up in a suffocating burrito and flies into the air with him. And Axe just knows instinctively that it's taking him to Visser 3. Back to Jake and Marco. This chapter has one of the best opening lines so far. I just love it. We're in Jake's POV and all he says is, my wolf nose told me a story. And that's how we get into what he can detect about what happened to Rachel based on the wolf's keen sense of smell. They have reached the site of the burning shack and they can smell burning wood, of course, and also lots of blood. They can tell it's bear blood. They can smell two humans and then a really strange, unfamiliar smell, which they assume is Axe. They can tell that Rachel was barefoot and that she was hurt badly in her bear morph. And the only thing that can easily do something like that is the dust monster. Tobias shows up and says he followed Rachel's bear tracks and it looks like she was walking only on her hind legs. They lead up to a stream where she must have demorphed. Tobias has no idea where she went after that. They could possibly follow her, but they just don't for some reason. The next question is, what about Axe? Why isn't he here? Did he see Rachel or did he show up before or after the dust cloud showed up? They see his hoof prints and then suddenly they just end like he was lifted away. They're terrified that maybe Axe was shredded into nothing by the creature and that's why they don't see his body. They don't know yet that the cloud comes in to capture, not kill. Night is starting to fall, which means that Tobias won't be able to help much soon, and also that Marco and Jake are worrying about how their parents are going to react if they don't return home. Tobias says he'll use the last hour of good light to stay on the lookout for Rachel, and Marco and Jake are heading home so their families don't freak out. They're going to hook up later at Cassie's barn to figure out what to do. They're still really confused about what's going on. Marco's like, it has to be the Yerks behind this, right? The monster seems to know who we are. It has come after all of us, but if they know who we are, why haven't the Yerks just rolled up and grabbed us yet at our homes? And also, why hasn't Rachel gone home yet? She's been out in the woods all day, apparently. Just a lot of questions. And given that there's so much they don't know, it also means they have no idea how to stay safe. And for some reason, Cassie is at the mall during all of this. There's a weak explanation, but at first I'm just like, what? She lists a bunch of stores she passes at the mall and also mentions the smell of cinnamon buns. 
I mean, at least if she knew about the scary wood scene, maybe she would have stopped at Cinnabon and picked one up in honor of Axe. Anyway, it turns out she knows that Jake, Marco, Tobias, and Axe are out investigating Rachel's trail from the ice cream truck wreck. And Jake asked her to check out somewhere Rachel likes to hang out, like the mall. Cassie's a little annoyed because it seems like Jake just wanted Cassie out of harm's way and so asked her to do something low risk. I mean, that's a pretty flimsy mission to send Cassie on. We just saw Rachel running around barefoot into the woods from a car wreck caused by a tornado of teeth. Hey, maybe she's chilling at the mall by now. Go check it out. What? So Cassie's annoyed, but she's also low-key glad to be out of harm's way. She's been extra stressed lately since she's had that recurring dream about something coming after her and she has to choose who dies. And Cassie didn't just check them all. She checked the YMCA where Rachel does gymnastics. She checked her frozen yogurt place, the middle school, and also Rachel's house. So the mall was her last place because Rachel loves to shop. I guess she did sort of shop for new clothes in the shack that one time, so she did end up shopping today after all. Huh. But anyway, Rachel isn't at the mall, but someone else is. Chapman! Assistant Principal Chapman. He's at the mall, he's got a shopping bag, and he's heading into a bookstore. Man, remember bookstores at the mall? I don't know if that's still a thing. In my world, they're all like standalone stores now and Barnes and Noble is like the only big chain left. When I was a teen, there was this bookstore in the mall that was so random. It was called like Foozles or something. And they were a book outlet. So you could find all kinds of books often for like $5 or less, even hardbacks. So yeah, I was a huge fan, but then they shut down. Great clearance sale though. Him. So Cassie sees Chapman mosey on to the bookstore and thinks to herself, he's a high-ranking controller, so he would know something about what all is going on. She decides to do one of the Animorphs' favorite pastimes, spy on Chapman. She finds a bathroom in the bookstore and morphs a fly. Suddenly, we're back to Axe. Sorry for getting whiplash. I'm just trying to respect the flow of the story here. Axe is surrounded by the dust cloud and it's moving upward quickly. It takes Axe high up into the air, but not into space, just really high into the sky, and delivers him into the blade ship, which is Fisher 3's private ship. It has an invisible force field around it so that humans won't see it. Axe is dropped on the floor in the middle of a small army of hork pointing draken beams at him. Axe knows there's no use fighting here. He couldn't take down like 10 hork by himself, and even if that weren't an issue, they're all armed, so he wouldn't even get close. Then, Visser 3 saunters up. Visser 3. For a moment, Axe feels like the world melted away and it's just the two of them. This is the Yerk that murdered his big brother. Axe is terrified, but also filled with anger and hate because of what Visser 3 is and what he's done. Visser 3 starts to deliver his customary monologue and exposition. He's like, hmm, so the Velik brings me my first captive. That's what the dust monster is called, y'all. A Valique. Well, that's not really what it's called, but that's what Visser 3 has chosen to call it. It's a yerk word for pet, which is, which is sweet. Then Visser 3 kind of considers Axe for a moment. First, he's like, why are you just a kid? That's weird, because as we know, Axe is an adolescent, just like the human animorphs. And then Visser 3 says, well, at least you're actually an Andalite. Some are starting to think you guys might be human, but here's proof that you're not. And I'm sorry, I'm glad for the kids' sakes that they haven't figured it out, but it is not that hard to figure out that the Animorphs are human. 
I bring this up a lot and I'm sorry, but it's just ridiculous. Axe tries to play along and he's all, yeah, me and my uncles are going to get you, which is real smooth. And Mr. Three is like, yeah, you guys have really been cramping my style. You destroyed our cargo ship, then you destroyed the Kendrona, so now I'm really pissed off, so you're gonna be dying for a long time. He's pretty scary, and Axe is feeling really ashamed about his own powerlessness. Axe wants to take his shot and try to kill Visser Three. In his culture, an Andalite warrior is expected to avenge his brother's murder, but there's no way he could pull it off, and he's too afraid. Also, he's not a warrior, he's a child, but Axe is too angsty to really accept that. Meanwhile, Visser 3 feels like dropping some more exposition on us about the Velik. I realize I use the word exposition a lot and I haven't really explained it, so let me do that briefly. Exposition basically just means explanation. It's the part in the story where someone, either the narrator or character or some sort of background, noise, explains what is going on, or gives us important information about the past so we can follow along. It's often done sort of clumsily because it's very difficult to do something like that and make it sound natural. Often in a series what happens is there are characters set up to be the ones to give exposition, so we accept it as part of their character or personality and it doesn't feel shoved in. For example, we accept exposition from Visser 3 because we know he likes to brag. Axe is also often a source of exposition because he's an alien who understands stuff about, you know, other species and other planets that the other kids don't. So here's what Visser 3 tells us about the Velik because he wants credit for his evil plan. The Velik is not a controller. It's also not even that intelligent. It eats what he calls life form energy. So when it detects something with energy, it rips that thing into shreds and each particle of the Velik feeds on the energy. It ate up a bunch of controllers when they first found it, but then Visser 3 realized that the Velik could be trained. So he's conditioned the Velik to hunt the energy that is given off by morphing, and instead of eating the morpher, it brings it back to the blade ship and feeds on energy from the blade ship's engines. Axe is basically like, you violated this creature like you do everything else, and Visser 3 has a reaction that I think is pretty interesting. He's like, ah yes, you're a typical self-righteous Andalite. He calls Andalite superior, meddling moralists, and I'm sorry, but is it just me, or does this sound like he's throwing shade on the United States' attitude about its place in the world? I mean, people in the States are often taught to think of this country as like the moral high ground, the city on the hill, or whatever. This does not mean I'm equating any other nation with Yerks, however. It's just interesting because through Axe, we know the Andalites are very proud and they're fairly condescending about other races. It's just not a good look. Axe is marched off to a cage on the blade ship and he feels disgraced because he didn't try to bring Visser 3 down. In case you were waiting with bated breath to find out what Chapman was up to at the mall, don't worry because we're back. Cassie is a fly. She's zipping around near the ceiling of the bookstore above Chapman's head. But he seems to literally just be shopping for books, so Cassie feels pretty silly for a while. After about 20 minutes, two people show up to talk to Chapman, so it turns out this is actually a secret meeting at the bookstore. Why? Apparently, Visser 3 is becoming paranoid that their usual meeting places are compromised, which I guess he's sort of right, so now the Yerks are taking walks through the mall to talk because they can blend into the crowd and stay anonymous, maybe? But then it makes more sense because it turns out Visser 3 isn't worried about the Andalite bandits spying on him. 
even though he should be. He's worried about Visser One, who has already stabbed him in the back before by letting the Animorphs escape that time. Visser Three can't prove it, but he knows she's a hater and wants to see him screw up, so he's having his minions meet in places where hers won't be. Chapman and the other two controllers are salty about the Valik because it has no chill and it's impossible to keep covering up evidence that there's more going on here than just freak tornadoes. And this is when we hear even more about the strain that the lost Candrona is causing. Chapman basically snaps at them to stop complaining about the Valik because Visser 3 is looking for any excuse to disinvite Yerks from the pool and let them starve. Candrona rays are being rationed and their best way to stay alive is to stay on the boss's good side. Chapman calls the Valik a morph hunter, which is good because now Cassie can maybe help the others figure out what the Valik is all about. Remember, so far only Axe figured it out and he's missing right now. Chapman says that Vista 3 is under some serious pressure because the Earth invasion is a hot mess. If he can't get a handle on the operation, he's going to be demoted to like Visser 5, which is rough, and you'd better believe he's taking everyone else down with him if that happens. Dude is a sore loser. Chapman leaves them with instructions to make the tornado story stick with the police and the press no matter what and hope the Valik succeeds in finding the Andalites because otherwise it'll be back to being their fault that the Andalites haven't been caught. I love this conversation. We just got all the tea. The Yurks are hurting badly and they are stressed out. We're back with Rachel now. She's taking us back to just after Axe was taken away by the Valik. She says that the injuries she had as a bear would have killed her if she'd been human. She stumbled off to a stream on her hind legs and collapsed into the water, hoping she could demorph. But she doesn't understand morphing anymore. Would her human body have the same injuries? But she has to try. She manages to demorph and thankfully her human arms grow back. She's still wondering if her name is Rachel and thinking about the alien she met, who we know was Axe, but she doesn't. She can't tell if the alien was a friend or not. She doesn't know which way to go now, but decides to follow the direction of the stream. Back at Cassie's barn, Tobias feels defeated. He didn't find any trace of Rachel or Axe anywhere. Jake, Cassie, Marco, and Tobias are all there together feeling really scared. They know that something bad has happened to Axe and to Rachel. Cassie has told them all about Chapman's conversation at the mall that he called the Valik a morph hunter. The kids still haven't figured out what that means yet though. They stop to think about why they keep surviving the attacks. When the Valik came to Darlene's pool party, Marco and Axe were completely vulnerable, but it left. Why did it stop? Tobias, being a bird of prey, can think like a predator. And he says a predator searches for movement. If the prey stops moving, it's harder to see. And then Cassie makes the connection. She's like, this is how the Valik knows where we are and why it comes after us. It's always when we're morphing. So as long as the prey isn't moving, or in this case morphing, then they're safe. The Valik stops mid-attack because whoever it's after finishes their morph just as another Animorph elsewhere starts morphing, which becomes more interesting to it. Personally, I think the phrase morph hunter should have been more self-explanatory, but I will give this a pass since I enjoyed seeing them work this out. So they're like, basically the sure way for the rest of us to stay safe from the Valik is to never morph again, which isn't really an option because that would mean the Yerks win. So instead we need to figure out how to beat this thing. They're not actually calling it the Valik, by the way, only Axe has learned that name. I'm just using it here for the sake of consistency. Anyway, Rachel, following the stream, has wandered into a suburban housing development. She is sore and hungry and scared and completely exhausted on top of still not knowing who or where she is. 
She debates walking up to a random house and asking to be taken in, but she realizes her appearance, bloody and barefoot in a leotard with amnesia, would probably be alarming to most people. Also, she has no idea how to determine who is safe and who isn't, so she's relieved when she finds an empty house that's up for sale. She drinks from the faucet on the side of the house and sneaks in through a window. There's a leftover box of vanilla wafers on the counter in the kitchen, presumably from the painting crew or something. So Rachel's all alone and doesn't remember who she is, but she's had some water and some cookies and decides to curl up on the carpet and get some rest. Unfortunately, her rest could stand to be more restful because while she sleeps, her dreams keep offering up little tidbits of all the scary stuff in her life. She sees the construction site where it all started, but she can't make out any faces. She has a brief moment of remembering gymnastics and being a cat. Then she remembers the yerk pool. And then worst of all, she remembers being ripped apart as an ant. And this is the part that's so bad, she wakes up screaming. That ant experience was bad, y'all. Even with amnesia, it will still haunt you forever. Police officers start pounding on the door of the house, shouting for Rachel to come out. She thinks about just surrendering, but then she remembers that she doesn't know who she can trust. She decides she needs to morph again to get out of the situation. She's going through possibilities in her head and she thinks about ants for a second and she's like, hell no, never again, because even with amnesia, it ain't happening. She's like, I felt that in my bones. Personally, I'm thinking her cat morph would be able to slip out of here pretty easily, but no, she wants power. She thinks the bear might be permanently injured, so we know what she's going for. That trusty old elephant morph. Good old Rachel, dialing it up to 11 as always. Some things never change. So the remaining kids are leaving Cassie's barn after their depressing meeting. Jake is thinking about how they didn't realize how important Rachel was for the group morale until she disappeared. It's pretty late and Cassie's mom comes outside worried about why Cassie and her middle school friends are still hanging out at like 9 p.m. The kids notice a dust cloud passing across the moon on its way into town and they're like, crap, it must be after either Axe or Rachel. So Jake is like, we have to try to keep it distracted. Since it goes after us when we're morphing, we just keep morphing in turn so it doesn't settle on any of us. Also, this way we can get it away from neighborhoods so hopefully it doesn't destroy any more houses. But how are they going to get to town quickly? Well, Cassie's dad's old pickup truck is parked at the house with the keys inside. So that's going to go great. Side note, you ever notice how we say car keys when really there's just one key used to turn on the car? Why, why is that? Anyway, there's another concern that we're going to get to, but they haven't talked about yet. Morphing is exhausting. Rapidly switching between morphs takes a lot out of you. So this idea they have is good in theory, but they won't be able to keep that up for very long. Rachel is half elephant inside the house and suddenly the Valique comes chomping through the wall behind her and the cops aren't such a huge concern anymore. Rachel charges through the front door with her big elephant head, although she still has some human features like tiny ears and blonde hair. She's thankful that elephants are faster than they look. Apparently they can run up to 25 miles per hour, but what they can't do is hide or dodge. Police start shooting, the Valique is getting closer and Rachel's starting to feel like there's no point in fleeing. She can't keep running forever and if she tries, she'll just bring the monster near houses with people inside who would get hurt. So in true Rachel fashion, she stops and faces the Valique, ready to go down fighting. The monster reaches out to try to grab her and lift her up, but it can't seem to get her more than a foot off the ground. 
it's just awkwardly trying to pick her up again and again. But y'all, she's too heavy. This is awesome. <laughs> Rachel is like, yeah, I weigh somewhere between 7,000 and 13,000 pounds. So this might not work. She starts to chuckle about the evil dust struggling when she hears the screeching tires of a car being driven very badly in her direction. I actually really love the flow of this book. I think it's very cinematic. Sometimes the transitions just sort of leave you hanging, but they're tighter now because the action is really picking up. It's Marco that's driving Cassie's dad's van because he plays this driving video game sometimes where you go super fast and crash into stuff, which is basically what's happening now. Jake and Cassie are also in the car trying to give him directions, but mostly screaming because they're driving over lawns and hitting pretty much every trash can in this neighborhood. They soon spot an elephant running down the street with the Valique behind it. They know it's Rachel, but just in case they needed to be super sure, they see the elephant suddenly stop running and face the Valique in defiance, which is a very Rachel move. They watch the Valique wrap around Rachel, and at first they're scared it's going to kill her, but it turns out it wants to capture her, but then she's too heavy. Jake starts trying to distract it by morphing into a tiger in the back seat. Cassie gets out of the truck to help Rachel. The Valique then switches gears and goes for the car and Marco takes off, sort of. He hits a parked car on the way. He's scared, but also super thrilled to be in a high-speed chase because it feels like an action movie. I can acknowledge the attempt at humor here to sort of lighten things up, but I don't really buy it. They have been terrorized by this thing all day. I don't buy for one second that they can think of any of it as fun. I mean, maybe later he'll reflect on it and think it's cool, but not in the moment. All right, so we're still in the car, but now from Jake's POV in the back seat. And if we thought the driving was bad before, now we're on the highway. I don't understand why this has happened. I guess to protect the homes, but there are still people on the highway who are now in danger from both the Valique and Marco's driving. Marco veers the truck off the road, so that Jake can hop out. He's almost completely morphed, and the idea is to have the Valique chase him for a few minutes, and then Marco is going to morph to distract it, and so on. Does Cassie have instructions for this plan, or are the two of them hoping to pull this off on their own? Um, it's just not clear. Anyway, Jake is fully tiger and hauling out of there back into the woods. We're in the woods a lot today. Jake is seriously fast right now, but the problem is tigers are sprinters. They don't run long distances, so he's not made to keep this chase up for long. He's basically hoping that he and Marco can wear out the Valique before they wear out, but does Evil Dust even get tired? It, it sure doesn't look like it. Back in the suburban neighborhood, Rachel is taking us back to the moment that the Valique failed to lift her. She has a flash of herself as an eagle, being mobbed by random birds on her way to visit Tobias. And finally, Tobias is the first name she remembers. I really love that. She's excited that something concrete has come back to her. And it's also incredibly sweet since we know that she and Tobias have this deeper connection, that his is the first name that, that she knows. Rachel knows the Valique has gone off after the car. She sees Cassie and can remember that she was with her at the construction site when everything started. But she can't remember Cassie's name or who she is. Are they friends or enemies? Cassie calls out her name, Rachel, which solidifies her memory that that really is her name. Cassie still doesn't know how confused Rachel is. And there's a moment that's like, who are you? What do you mean, who am I? What's up with you? And Rachel is like, are you my friend? Also, what the hell am I? Because if I was her, that would be my first question because of this bird, bear, elephant stuff is not normal, ma'am. Cassie tells Rachel that she's an animorph and that she has to trust her. Sirens are coming closer and clearly Rachel doesn't have a clue what's going on, but Rachel's able to think past her doubts and realize that this girl Cassie is her best hope right now and says, tell me what to do. 
Now we're back on the blade ship with Axe. He's in a sort of box cage thing that's completely dark. And he's not doing so well. Not so much because he's scared, which he is, but because he's ashamed of himself for not trying to avenge his brother. He feels dishonored and he keeps going over the moment that he was face to face with Visser 3 over and over again, wondering if he could have done something differently, which, no, he couldn't have. Suddenly one of the walls of Axe's box cage becomes transparent. Apparently Visser 3 wants to show off some more. It seems he installed a body cam on the Valique so they could get live footage of it catching the Andalite bandits. The footage is being shown in a hologram on the bridge of the ship, so the whole Horpagier slash Taxon crew can enjoy it too. Movie night! And, I kid you not, the footage right now is of Jake fleeing in his tiger morph. And you know, you know, Visser 3 loves him some felines, and he's like, Yes, such magnificent creatures. I have to acquire one of those. Look how it moves. He's just delighted, y'all. Jake is clearly tired and stops running and bares his teeth at the Valique. Visser 3 is leaning in all excited, thinking this is going to be the money shot when Jake gets snatched, but the Valique suddenly flakes out and just hangs there in the air for a moment. Visser 3 is like, what the hell? And an unfortunate human controller sort of shuffles over to explain that the Valique probably sensed another morph happening elsewhere which is more attractive because the tiger isn't morphing anymore. Visser 3 doesn't kill the controller, so good for him. This shows some personal growth in terms of regulating his anger, I think. He decides that two bug fighters should tail the Valique and help finish the job of either capturing or killing the Andalite bandits. A Taxon comes up and apparently in Taxon language says that following the Valique might be difficult, but then Visser 3 slices it open with his tail. So, baby steps. I guess. But honestly, these controllers should know better. He already manages to not kill one dude. Don't press your luck with more bad news. You know the song No Bad News from The Wiz? That's Visser 3's song. And in case you were wondering what Marco has been up to, you're in luck because we go screeching back into the out of control pickup truck. He somehow ended up back in the housing development anyway after all that. He came full circle once he decided to go off-roading. Which is just silly, but I guess we needed more of the kids in the same place. He's still driving, but it's time for him to get the heat off of Jake, so he starts morphing into a gorilla. Which is why we saw the Valique quit chasing Jake in the live feed. He can hear the Valique swirling up behind him as he slams his gorilla feed on the gas pedal. And now we're back in the neighborhood from Rachel's POV. Cassie is giving her the Sparknotes version of the Animorphs book series while riding on Rachel's elephant back. They're heading back into the woods to get away from the homes that will be endangered when the Valique comes back. Cassie is like, look, I know you're having a rough night, but we need you to get it together. We all need to help keep the Valique distracted with morphing. We're trying to wear it out, even though it seems like that will never happen. Cassie decides to morph to Squirrel so she can attract the Valique, but easily stay on Rachel's back since Rachel's too big to carry. Back to Marco. The Valique is right behind him and now bug fighters swoop into the sky out of nowhere firing Draken beams. And Marco is a gorilla driving a pickup truck. It's just chaos at this point. Marco slams on the brakes and he's thrown from the truck as it somersaults and he lands in a ditch about to pass out. There's enough head trauma to go around, I guess. He hears a loud elephant sound, but he doesn't know what's going on. The Valique has changed his focus once more, and we know it's because Cassie is morphing, but Marco doesn't know that. Now we're with Cassie. She's shrinking into her squirrel morph on Rachel's back. She sees the Valique and the bug fighters and trying not to panic, and Rachel in Thoughtspeak is like, what the hell is ever happening? Because if you had no memory and all of this is going on, it's a lot. Rachel's side gets partially burned from a Draken beam right before she gets hit by Marco's truck. 
Cassie flies off her back as a half squirrel. Rachel's down. The truck hurt her pretty bad. Cassie can see Gorilla Marco struggling in a ditch not far away. It's just, it doesn't look, it doesn't look good. The Valik is hovering and surveying this whole scene. In my mind, it's going eeny, meeny, miny, mo, but of course it doesn't really say that. Cassie realizes that this moment is what she'd been dreaming about for days. She has a choice. If she keeps morphing, the Valik would take her. Otherwise it would take someone else and Rachel is too big. Cassie is frozen in fear and closes her eyes. We're back on the blade ship with Axe, watching this go down through the body cam footage. But the feed switches from the Valique's POV to one of the bugfighter cameras, which I guess offers higher definition. Axe can't see who it grabs though. Visser 3 orders that the bugfighter stay at the scene to make sure the elephant doesn't get away and goes back to his master suite on the blade ship to wait for his new captive. Just living in style. Axe is feeling pretty helpless and worried for his friends, but then he feels a flea bite him. Remember way back in the beginning of the book, Axe learns that he has fleas and he's understandably not happy about it? He picks a flea out of his fur and he's like, wait, if I acquire and morph this flea, I would be pretty invisible to the Yerks. It's a slim chance, but it is a chance. So he acquires the flea and we get a description of the transformation, which is fairly standard. But what I want to know is what happens to the fleas on Axe when he morphs into a flea? Does he suddenly just like get this like flea posse? Do they reappear when he demorphs? What? But we don't get answers to that. We do learn through the morphing description that Andalites have more than one heart, which is pretty cool. So now he's a flea lying in wait. The flea brain is pretty chill because it's only interested in biting skin. So it's just like, huh, no skin in the cage. What ifs? He hears Visser 3 shouting in thought speak all, make the cage transparent again. I want to watch my captives greet each other. Like it's a special reunion episode of his own reality TV show. He, he doesn't say all that, but he, he does seem to think he's in for some entertainment. But then he sees that Axe appears to be gone and he's like, where is he? If he escapes, I am killing everybody. And like idiots, the controllers open the cage to check it out and Axe jumps right on out. Fleas can jump remarkably high and far relative to their size. He says they can leap 100 times their own height, which is like a human just casually hopping over a six story building. He lands on a controller, but he doesn't know which type. But whoever it is, is struck dead the next second because Visser 3 is having a tantrum. All right, back to Marco. The Valik chose him, it turns out. He's plopped down on the blade ship. A bunch of Hork-Bajiran toxins have Draken beams pointed at him from every angle. Visser 3 just killed a Hork-Bajir and there's blood on his tail. Visser 3 is barking orders like, find that Andalite. And Marco is like, ah, Axe is still alive. And also that's why the Hork-Bajir isn't. Suddenly Axe thought speaks to him and tells him he morphed a flea. He's like, I got a plan, which makes Marco groan because plans have been going so great for these kids today. Marco's like, you're a flea, cool, but where are you? And Axe is like, um, well, the safest place I could think of was on Visser 3. <laughs> yes, that is brilliant because everyone else on the ship is probably toast in a few minutes. I love it. Axe tells Marco in a few minutes, there will be a huge distraction and I want you to grab a remote from one of the taxons and open the hatch of the blade ship. Axe's plan, since he's on Visser 3 and the Valique is now on the ship as well, is to demorph so that it goes after the Visser, which is excellent. 
Ax starts to demorph while attached to Visser 3, and the Valik is like, yes, and grabs him. Chaos ensues, controllers are shouting, a hork tries to attack the Valik to rescue Visser 3 and loses his whole arm. Marco seizes the opportunity to punch controllers out of his way to grab a remote. But Visser 3 seems to know how to handle this situation. He orders the controllers to bring water. Hmm. Marco manages to get the hatch open, but then a bunch of hork charge in his direction. Axe's POV again. He says he never planned on completely demorphing from a flea, he just wanted Visser 3 to be grabbed, but he goes back into his flea morph at that point. He launches himself off of Visser 3's back and into the murder dust cloud. He finally gets to see what the Valique really is. I won't dwell on the details, but basically it's not actually dust, but like a swarm of tiny bugs about the size of a flea. Ugh. I'm, I hate when things are made up of a bunch of really tiny alive things. I'm so unhappy about this right now. I want it to to go away. But um, anyhow, the Valique gets sprayed with water and Axe sees these massive droplets, much bigger than him, start knocking into the bugs and sort of enclosing them. His flea body also gets trapped in a water droplet, but fortunately it frees him when it splashes onto the floor. Axe asks Marco to stamp his feet so he can find him and get into his fur. Marco then leapfrogs off the nearest hork and launches himself out of the open hatch. The thing is, the ship is two miles up in midair. So, I mean, I guess this is a glass half full sort of situation. But no matter. Now we're back with Rachel and she's taking us back to the moment when the pickup truck spun out of control and hit her. There was a lot going on, you guys. Megamorphs is no joke. Um, Rachel is knocked off her feet and slams her elephant head into concrete. She has once again hit her head extremely hard, but apparently that shakes some stuff loose. She gets more flashbacks of Yerks, Cassie, the other Animorphs, why she lost her memory in Eagle Morph, etc. Cassie screams that Marco's been taken, she's really upset, but Rachel can't really connect with the urgency of the moment because she's just so relieved to even know who Marco is. Her memory is finally coming back. Rachel can't stand up because the truck broke one of her elephant legs, so she and Cassie decide to demorph. They figure it's safe right now because the Valique is off delivering Marco. Cassie feels really bad that she stopped morphing before the Valique chose to take Marco instead. She's being really hard on herself, I think, because she was too scared to help. She and Rachel morph great horned owls so they can see in the dark and travel quickly to get away from the scene because controllers are still nearby and coming for them. I thought bug fighters would be trained on Rachel this whole time, but I guess they are slacking. Controllers really can't afford to sleep on the job because Visser 3, as we all know, has zero chill. But, you know, do you. Jake shows up in his tiger morph to knock down a hork and help Cassie and Rachel escape. And he doesn't know yet that Marco was taken. And the good news there is Marco isn't taken anymore. The bad news, as we, as we saw, is he's falling like a stone through the sky as a gorilla. Marco's commentary is actually hilarious in this scene, but it's hard to communicate without just reading the whole scene word by word, so just, just take my word for it. He's screaming his head off in thought speak before Flea Axe is just like, morph into a bird, duh. If I were Axe, I would stay on Marco as a flea and take my chances, but anyway, they both demorph. 
They start doing burn morphs, but the ground is getting really close now and they barely have time to change. Basically, they spread their wings and glide along the pavement like seconds before impact. And that would be a really badass scene in a movie, but I just can't take much more suspense and action thrills, okay? While all of this is going down, Cassie, Rachel, and Jake do the only thing they can do, having no idea where Marco and Axe are and being too exhausted to fight or search for them. They go home. Well, Rachel stays with Cassie because she's supposed to be at gymnastics camp this whole time. Jake is grounded forever for coming home in the middle of the night with no good explanation, but more or less they, you know, they're safe and sound in their respective houses. Jake falls asleep in his bed, feeling terrible and scared about everything, and he's woken up by Marco acting a fool, scaring him awake. Like, is that even slightly amusing to any of them at this point? Jake is relieved he's alive, but kind of confused, and Marco's like, get it together, we need a plan to take out the Valique. They're going to meet up at Cassie's barn as humans, no morphing for faster travel, because as we know, morphing is really dangerous right now. So now we're in Cassie's barn and Cassie's point of view. Tobias is complaining that he missed out on so much action, but of course the Valik never came after him since he can't morph. And he wouldn't have been much help anyway at night. But apparently he just slept through everything, which I found surprising because they were all up in the woods, crashing trucks and bug fighters shooting and sirens going and gorillas and ditches and broken elephant legs. But yeah, he slept. Okay, sure. Cassie is still haunted by knowing that when it came down to it, she stopped morphing to save herself. I think she's unnerved at her own imperfection. Cassie has this very strong moral compass and she wants to be the person who would always do the selfless thing, but she really choked that time. No one else is blaming her, but she was still like really thrown by that moment. Jake gives us a recap of the leak facts. It's a swarm of bugs and the less we can bring that up, the better. It can chew through anything and is trained to capture anything that's morphing. It seems pretty invincible, but Cassie points out that it has a weight limit because Rachel's elephant morph was too heavy. Also, water seems to hurt it. And based on all of this information, Cassie has come up with a plan to beat the Valik. She decides that she's going to be the main one to execute this plan in order to make up for ditching Marco that time. She feels like a coward, which is harsh, but she's got to work through this. Whatever the plan is involves a new morph, and there will be no way to test it out first, and Cassie is the best at morphing, so it makes sense in a number of ways that she'd be the one to do this. We don't hear the plan, which is how you know it's going to work. It's a general theory that I have about narratives. If you hear all about a plan before it starts, that means a lot of things are going to go wrong. I mean, there needs to be suspense, see? But if we're not in on the plan, that's because it's going to go well. Anyway, the first step of the plan is apparently to go to the beach, which means we're getting some ocean sounds again. We're into Tobias's POV again. It's been a while. He's floating on beautiful thermals, of course. In case you don't know what those are, he describes it for a minute. And anyway, it seems that he's an integral part of this plan. He is exasperated with Cassie for feeling weak because he knows that that isn't true. And given what's about to happen, it proves that Cassie is as brave as anyone else in the group, perhaps even more so. Tobias is headed out over the ocean to search for something. It's a little stressful because there are no thermals over the water, which is why birds like hawks don't fly over water, but he wants to do his part. He's the only one who can do a flying job right now because the other kids would have to morph, which would attract the Valik. Turns out Tobias was out over the water looking for a whale. He spots one and heads back to the Animorphs on the beach to tell him that he found it. 
Axe isn't here, by the way. Remember, the kids can't morph, and Axe would have to be human to go to the beach with them undetected, so he had to set this one out. Back to Cassie. Marco is participating in some good old 90s fat shaming about people at the beach in their bathing suits, which thankfully didn't age well. I'd love to think we are mostly past thinking that this is okay, but Cassie can tell Marco is hamming it up to try to raise morale. He feels awkward about how Cassie feels guilty, and his way of dealing is to try to make everyone laugh. Tobias flies over and lets them know which direction the whale is in, and then we get a little more insight into the plan. It involves doing a whole lot of morphs in a short amount of time, which is brutal. If anyone can do it, then it's Cassie because of her morphing talent. Apparently, she's going to use three different animals, which means with going in and out of her human body each time, she's going to morph six times. I'm really curious now, like, what is this all about? What could possibly need to be this elaborate? The kids all wade out into the water and morph dolphins. It only takes a few minutes before the Valique shows up, swirling and snapping over their heads, but it's not getting too close because they're in the water. Once the morph is complete, they experience some relief because of the joyful nature of the dolphin brain, which is really nice, and then they head out to find the whale. It's a humpback whale, but no indication of whether it's the same one that we met before. The whale is massive even to their dolphin bodies. Cassie says swimming alongside him felt like running along next to a train. Cassie starts to demorph and Jake and Rachel hold her up so she can keep pace with the humpback. She touches the whale to acquire it. She feels guilty about it because she couldn't explain to the whale what she was doing, but she can feel its intelligence and wishes she were able to get consent. She says she can tell that whales have souls. After she's done acquiring the whale, they let it swim away and Cassie is ready for the next phase. Of course, we all still have some questions about what exactly is going to go down. So now we're back with Tobias again. He's been hovering above the Valik this whole time. Cassie is on his back now in Roach Morph. We don't ever get an explanation of how Cassie got on Tobias's back as a roach, so I, I have some questions, but I guess, I guess it's not that important. Tobias is basically trying to get as high up in the air as he can get, which is hard because, like he said, no thermals. So he has to flap really hard. It seems important that Tobias strains to get as much altitude as possible, even though it's really difficult in order for Cassie's plan to work. Cassie is still afraid, but Tobias reassures her that they're all scared, and none of them know how to handle it. They just stay scared, and they keep fighting anyway. Cassie tells Tobias that if she dies, he has to tell Jake to find a way to let her parents know what this was really all about someday. Except for the pickup truck. Her dad believes it was stolen, and they should always stick to that story. That's something kind of sad that I don't really think about all the time. You know, the idea that if something were to happen to these kids, you know, as far as we know, nobody except for the group would have any idea what they had sacrificed or how brave they were. Their own parents would never have any idea about all of this that's going on. And I, I can understand why Cassie would, would say that, would be like, I want my parents to know that this was something that I was doing. I was fighting, I was brave, I was a warrior, I was doing my best to save the world. You know, just so that somebody can kind of can, you know, just see her for who she really is eventually. Anyhow, soon, Tobias lets Cassie know that he's flown as high up as he can. 
and she crawls off his wing and just starts plummeting back towards the sea. Tobias watches her fall and he's like, wow, and she thinks she's a coward. Some people just can't see themselves clearly at all. Now we're with Cassie again as she's falling as a roach. It's still not clear what this is about, but I'm starting to get a little bit of an inkling. Cassie starts to demorph, which means she can see the surface of the water better and thinks about how she's going to die if she hits it at her current speed. And of course the Valique is shooting up towards her because she's morphing, but that is part of the plan. She's fully human now, but she needs to change once again. And at this point she is super tired. She's done, you know, human to dolphin, dolphin to human, human to roach, roach to human. She is just spent. She is starting to get bigger because she's, she's trying to do this last morph that's part of the plan, but it's happening slowly because she's so tired. The Valique starts wrapping itself around her and that spurs her on to keep, to keep going. Turns out she's becoming the humpback whale, but it's really hard to do at this point. Thankfully, the whale brain starts to kick in and she can feel all of its wisdom and instincts and she kind of asks it for strength. It's so beautiful, you guys. I promise the ocean and the whales don't happen that often in the series, so when it does come up, I really just want to bask in it for a moment. And now we're seeing what all of this looks like to Rachel. She's worried for Cassie and asks Jake if they should try to distract the Valique. And Jake says, no, it's up to Cassie now. And Rachel has a kind of mixture of respect and like, I don't know, like sadness or something. And she says, Jake will probably end up being a general or president one day because of the way he can make hard decisions and focus on the big picture, even when it means possibly sacrificing the people that he cares about. Rachel is also in awe of Cassie because of the sheer number of morphs she is pulling off. It should be impossible. The Valique encases Cassie, but Rachel can see that she's still steadily morphing into the humpback whale. And the Valique sort of slows down and starts to fall because it's too heavy, which is really good news. This was the plan. The Valique is now wrapped tightly around a giant, heavy humpback whale. And it did break Cassie's momentum as she was falling down towards the water. And now it's still sinking into the ocean because it can't lift her. This is so smart. I'm just really proud of them. The whale covered in the Valique swarm splashes into the water. The Valique dissolves into nothing, dispersed for good. It's gone. Thank goodness we just do not need to talk about the swarm of minuscule dust bugs, hopefully ever again. But the whale is still falling through the water for a moment. The kids are all shouting and thought speak, hoping that Cassie's okay. But then Cassie powers back to the surface, cackling, shooting herself out of the water, splashing back down dramatically because they won. The kids are amazed. They thought she might have just, you know, just fainted from exhaustion. But Cassie says no, she feels great now because of the whale mind and also because of their victory. And they're all further impressed when Cassie starts singing whale song. The kids are all deeply moved by it and Cassie doesn't need to translate it because there aren't words. She says it's simply the sound of hope. I think it's a great tie-in to the last time they were in the ocean when the earth seemed to be rising up to help them through a whale to fight this alien monster that seemed unbeatable. 
there didn't seem to be a way out of the situation for quite some time, but somehow they figured it out. That's it for this episode. Stay tuned for the next book, The Alien, starring Axe as the narrator. It's Axe's first book, and I'm pleased to say he will now be part of the regular rotation. We finally learned some info about Andalites we've been wondering for some time. For example, how do they eat with no mouths? And you'd best believe we're gonna be trying some foods, experiencing some new tastes. In the meantime, please subscribe to my podcast and or follow The Salty Professor on Instagram to continue the conversation. You can also email me at yoursaltyprofessor at gmail.com. Bye.